Chapter Three of Green Mansions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Green Mansions by W. H. Hudson. Chapter Three. I was not disappointed on my next visit to the forest, nor on several succeeding visits, and this seemed to show that if I was right in believing that these strange, melodious utterances proceeded from one individual, then the bird, or being, though still refusing to show itself, was always on the watch for my appearance, and followed me wherever I went. This thought only served to increase my curiosity. I was constantly pondering over the subject and at last concluded that it would be best to induce one of the Indians to go with me to the wood, on the chance of his being able to explain the mystery. One of the treasures I had managed to preserve in my sojourn with these children of nature, who were always anxious to become possessors of my belongings, was a small prettily fashioned metal matchbox, opening with a spring. Remembering that Kuako, among others, had looked at this trifle with covetous eyes, the covetous way in which they all looked at it had given it a fictitious value in my own. I tried to bribe him with the offer of it to accompany me to my favourite haunt. The brave young hunter refused again and again, but on each occasion he offered to perform some other service or to give me something in exchange for the box. At last I told him that I would give it to the first person who should accompany me, and fearing that someone would be found valiant enough to win the prize, he at length plucked up a spirit, and on the next day, seeing me going out for a walk, he all at once offered to go with me. He cunningly tried to get the box before starting. His cunning, poor youth, was not very deep. I told him that the forest we were about to visit abounded with plants and birds unlike any I had seen elsewhere, that I wished to learn their names and everything about them, and that when I had got the required information, the box would be his, not sooner. Finally we started, he, as usual, armed with his zapatana, with which I imagined he would procure more game than usually fell to his little poisoned arrows. When we reached the wood I could see that he was ill at ease. Nothing would persuade him to go into the deeper parts, and even when it was very open and light he was constantly gazing into bushes and shadowy places as if expecting to see some frightful creature lying in wait for him. This behaviour might have had a disquieting effect on me had I not been thoroughly convinced that his fears were purely superstitious, and that there could be no dangerous animal in a spot I was accustomed to walk in every day. My plan was to ramble about with an unconcerned air, occasionally pointing out an uncommon tree or shrub or vine or calling his attention to a distant bird-cry, and asking the bird's name, in the hope that the mysterious voice would make itself heard, and that he would be able to give me some explanation of it. But for upwards of two hours we moved about, hearing nothing except the usual bird-voices, and during all that time he never stirred a yard from my side, nor made an attempt to capture anything. At length we sat down under a tree, in an open spot close to the border of the wood. He sat down very reluctantly, and seemed more troubled in his mind than ever, keeping his eyes continually roving about, 
while he listened intently to every sound. The sounds were not few, owing to the abundance of animal and especially of bird-life in this favoured spot. I began to question my companion as to some of the cries we heard. There were notes and cries familiar to me as the crowing of the cock, parrot screams and yelping of toucans, the distant wailing calls of Mayam and Duraquara, and shrill laughter-like notes of the large tree-climber as it passed from tree to tree, the quick whistle of Cotingas, and strange throbbing and thrilling sounds, as of pygmies beating on metallic drums, of the skulking pitta-thrushes, and with these mingled other notes less well known. One came from the tree-tops, where it was perpetually wandering amid the foliage a low note, repeated at intervals of a few seconds, so thin and mournful and full of mystery that I half expected to hear that it proceeded from the restless ghost of some dead bird. But no, he only said it was uttered by a little bird, too little, presumably, to have a name. From the foliage of a neighbouring tree came a few tinkling chirps, as of a small mandolin, two or three strings of which had been carelessly struck by the player. He said that it came from the small green frog that lived in trees, and in this way my rude Indian, vexed perhaps at being asked such trivial questions, brushed away the pretty fantasies my mind had woven in the woodland solitude. For I often listened to this tinkling music, and it had suggested the idea that the place was frequented by a tribe of fairy-like troubadour monkeys, and that if I could only be quick-sighted enough I might one day be able to detect the minstrel sitting in a green tunic, perhaps, cross-legged on some high, swaying bough, carelessly touching his mandolin, suspended from his neck by a yellow ribbon. By and by a bird came with low, swift flight, its great tail spread open fan-wise, and perched itself on an exposed bough not thirty yards from us. It was all of a chestnut-red color, long-bodied, in size like a big pigeon, its actions showed that its curiosity had been greatly excited, for it jerked from side to side, eyeing us first with one eye, then the other, while its long tail rose and fell in a measured way. "'Look, Kuako,' I said in a whisper, "'there is a bird for you to kill.' But he only shook his head, still watchful. "'Give me the blowpipe, then,' I said with a laugh, putting out my hand to take it but he refused to let me take it, knowing that it would only be an arrow wasted if I attempted to shoot anything. As I persisted in telling him to kill the bird, he at last bent his lips near me and said in a half-whisper, as if fearful of being overheard, "'I can kill nothing here. If I shot at the bird, the daughter of the Didi would catch the dart in her hand and throw it back and hit me here,' touching his breast just over his heart." I laughed again, saying to myself, with some amusement, that Kuako was not such a bad companion after all, that he was not without imagination. But in spite of my laughter his words roused my interest, and suggested the idea that the voice I was curious about had been heard by the Indians, and was as great a mystery to them as to me, since, not being like that of any creature known to them, it would be attributed by their superstitious minds to one of the numerous demons or semi-human monsters inhabiting every forest, stream, and mountain, and fear of it would drive them from the wood. In this case, judging from my companion's words, 
they had varied the form of the superstition somewhat, inventing a daughter of a water-spirit to be afraid of. My thought was that if their keen practice eyes had never been able to see this flitting woodland creature with a musical soul, it was not likely that I would succeed in my quest. I began to question him, but he now appeared less inclined to talk and more frightened than ever, and each time I attempted to speak he imposed silence with a quick gesture of alarm, while he continued to stare about him with dilated eyes. All at once he sprang to his feet as if overcome with terror, and started running at full speed. His fear infected me, and springing up I followed as fast as I could, but he was far ahead of me, running for dear life, and before I had gone forty yards my feet were caught in a creeper trailing along the surface, and I measured my length on the ground. The sudden violent shock almost took away my senses for a moment, but when I jumped up and stared round to see no unspeakable monster, Kurupita or other, rushing on to slay and devour me there and then, I began to feel ashamed of my cowardice, and in the end I turned and walked back to the spot I had just quitted, and sat down once more. I even tried to hum a tune, just to prove to myself that I had completely recovered from the panic caught from the miserable Indian, but it is never possible in such cases to get back one's serenity immediately, and a vague suspicion continued to trouble me for a time. After sitting there for half an hour or so, listening to distant bird sounds, I began to recover my old confidence, and even to feel inclined to penetrate further into the wood. All at once, making me almost jump so sudden it was, so much nearer and louder than I had ever heard it before, the mysterious melody began. Unmistakably it was uttered by the same being heard on former occasions, but to-day it was different in character. The utterance was far more rapid, with fewer silent intervals, and it had none of the usual tenderness in it, nor ever once sunk to that low, whisper-like talking, which had seemed to me as if the spirit of the wind had breathed its low sighs in syllables and speech. Now it was not only loud, rapid, and continuous, but while still musical, there was an incisiveness in it, a sharp ring as of resentment, which made it strike painfully on the sense. The impression of an intelligent, unhuman being addressing me in anger took so firm a hold on my mind that the old fear returned, and rising I began to walk rapidly away, intending to escape from the wood. The voice continued violently berating me, as it seemed to my mind, moving with me, which caused me to accelerate my steps, and very soon I would have broken into a run when its character began to change again. There were pauses now, intervals of silence, long or short, and after each one the voice came to my ear with a more subdued and dulcet sound, more of that melting, flute-like quality it had possessed at other times, and this softness of tone, coupled with the talking-like form of utterance, gave me the idea of a being no longer incensed, addressing me now in a peaceable spirit, reasoning away my unworthy tremors, and imploring me to remain with it in the wood. Strange as this voice without a body was, and always productive of a slightly uncomfortable feeling on account of its mystery, it seemed impossible to doubt that it came to me now in a spirit of pure friendliness, and when I had recovered my composure, I found a new delight in listening to it, 
all the greater because of the fear so lately experienced, and of its seeming intelligence. For the third time I reseated myself on the same spot, and at intervals the voice talked to me there for some time, and to my fancy expressed satisfaction and pleasure at my presence. But later, without losing its friendly tone, it changed again. It seemed to move away and to be thrown back from a considerable distance, and at long intervals it would approach me again with a new sound, which I began to interpret as of command or entreaty. Was it, I asked myself, inviting me to follow? And if I obeyed, to what delightful discoveries or frightful dangers might it lead? My curiosity, together with the belief that the being, I called it being, not bird now, was friendly to me, overcame all timidity, and I rose and walked at random towards the interior of the wood. Very soon I had no doubt left that the being had desired me to follow, for there was now a new note of gladness in its voice, and it continued near me as I walked, at intervals approaching me so closely as to set me staring into the surrounding shadowy places like poor scared Kuako. On this occasion, too, I began to have a new fancy, for fancy or illusion I was determined to regard it, that some swift-footed being was treading the ground near me, that I occasionally caught the faint rustle of a light footstep, and detected a motion in leaves and fronds and thread-like stems of creepers hanging near the surface, as if some passing body had touched and made them tremble, and once or twice that I even had a glimpse of a grey, misty object moving at no great distance in the deeper shadows. Led by this wandering, tricksy being, I came to a spot where the trees were very large, and the damp, dark ground almost free from undergrowth. And here the voice ceased to be heard. After patiently waiting and listening for some time, I began to look about me with a slight feeling of apprehension. It was still about two hours before sunset, only in this place the shade of the vast trees made a perpetual twilight. Moreover, it was strangely silent here, the few bird cries that reached me coming from a long distance. I had flattered myself that the voice had become to some extent intelligible to me. Its outburst of anger caused no doubt by my cowardly flight after the Indian, then its recovered friendliness, which had induced me to return and finally its desire to be followed. Now that it had led me to this place of shadow and profound silence, and had ceased to speak and to lead, I could not help thinking that this was my goal, that I had been brought to this spot with a purpose, that in this wild and solitary retreat some tremendous adventure was about to befall me. As the silence continued unbroken, there was time to dwell on this thought. I gazed before me and gazed intently, scarcely breathing, until the suspense became painful, too painful at last, and I turned and took a step with the idea of going back to the border of the wood, when close by, clear as a silver bell, sounded the voice once more, but only for a moment, two or three syllables in response to my movement, then it was silent again. Once more I was standing still, as if in obedience to a command, in the same state of suspense, and whether the change was real or only imagined I know not, but the silence every minute grew more profound and the gloom deeper. 
imaginary terrors began to assail me. Ancient fables of men, allured by beautiful forms and melodious voices to destruction, all at once acquired a fearful significance. I recalled some of the Indian beliefs, especially that of the misshapen, man-devouring monster who is said to beguile his victims into the dark forest by mimicking the human voice, the voice sometimes of a woman in distress, or by singing some strange and beautiful melody. I grew almost afraid to look round lest I should catch sight of him stealing towards me on his huge feet, with toes pointing backwards, his mouth snarling horribly to display his great green fangs. It was distressing to have such fancies in this wild, solitary spot, hateful to feel their power over me when I knew that they were nothing but fancies and creations of the savage mind. But if these supernatural beings had no existence, there were other monsters, only too real, in these woods, which it would be dreadful to encounter alone and unarmed, since against such adversaries a revolver would be as ineffectual as a pop-gun. Some huge camudi, able to crush my bones like brittle twigs in its constricting coils, might lurk in these shadows, and approach me stealthily, unseen in its dark colour on the dark ground. Or some jaguar or black tiger might steal towards me, masked by a bush or tree-chunk, to spring upon me unawares. Or, worse still, this way might suddenly come a pack of those swift-footed, unspeakably terrible, hunting leopards, from which every living thing in the forest flies with shrieks of consternation, or else falls paralyzed in their path to be instantly torn to pieces and devoured. A slight rustling sound in the foliage above me made me start and cast up my eyes. High up, where a pale gleam of tempered sunlight fell through the leaves, a grotesque human-like face, black as ebony and adorned with a great red beard, appeared staring down upon me. In another moment it was gone. It was only a large araguato, or howling monkey, but I was so unnerved that I could not get rid of the idea that it was something more than a monkey. Once more I moved, and again, the instant I moved my foot, clear and keen and imperative, sounded the voice. It was no longer possible to doubt its meaning. It commanded me to stand still, to wait, to watch, to listen. Had it cried, listened, do not move, I could not have understood it better. Trying as the suspense was, I now felt powerless to escape. Something very terrible, I felt convinced, was about to happen, either to destroy or to release me from the spell that held me. And while I stood thus rooted to the ground, the sweat standing in large drops on my forehead, all at once, close to me, sounded a cry, fine and clear at first, and rising at the end to a shriek so loud, piercing and unearthly in character, that the blood seemed to freeze in my veins, and a despairing cry to heaven escaped my lips. Then, before that long shriek expired, a mighty chorus of thunderous voices burst forth around me, and in this awful tempest of sound I trembled like a leaf and the leaves on the trees were agitated as if by a high wind, and the earth itself seemed to shake beneath my feet. Indescribably horrible were my sensations at that moment. I was deafened, and would possibly have been maddened had I not, as by a miracle, chanced to see a large araguato on a branch overhead, 
roaring with open mouth and inflated throat and chest. It was simply a concert of howling monkeys that had so terrified me. But my extreme fear was not strange in the circumstances, since everything that had led up to the display, the gloom and silence, the period of suspense, and my heated imagination, had raised my mind to the highest degree of excitement and expectancy. I had rightly conjectured, no doubt, that my unseen guide had led me to that spot for a purpose, and the purpose had been to set me in the midst of a congregation of Araguatos, to enable me for the first time fully to appreciate their unparalleled vocal powers. I had always heard them at a distance. Here they were gathered in scores, possibly hundreds, the whole Araguato population of the forest, I should think, close to me, and it may give some faint conception of the tremendous power and awful character of the sound thus produced by their combined voices, when I say that this animal, miscalled Howler in English, would outroar the mightiest lion that ever woke the echoes of an African wilderness. This roaring concert, which lasted three or four minutes, having ended, I lingered a few minutes longer on the spot, and not hearing the voice again, went back to the edge of the wood, and then started on my way back to the village. End of chapter.